Jones. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Life, life Thank you all for being here today. Um, I'm really excited to be here in Boston um, talking to my friend Rahul Danda. It's going to be a great episode. Um, I love live taping of podcasts because there's a lot of energy in the room. And just a big shout out to our sponsors at Cooley, Sikich, and Benchling. Thank you very much for supporting us. Um, through your support, we're supporting uh, founders, entrepreneurs, scientists that we uh, believe very deeply are developing platforms, technologies, therapeutics, diagnostics, tools that ultimately are going to make an impact on, on patients um, suffering from, from diseases that are currently not addressed. Um, so with that all being said, I'm really excited to get underway with our conversation. I'm going to give a brief uh, bio on Rahul, and then we'll get into the conversation and dive right in. So welcome to the podcast, Rahul. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. <laughs> So he is uh, the co-founder and CEO and a director of Synthes Bio. Uh, previously, Rahul co-founded Sherlock Biosciences, where he was CEO, president, and a director, and built a very diverse team that launched the first CRISPR product authorized by the FDA. An advocate of equity in society and STEM, Rahul founded the 221B Foundation, a nonprofit providing CRISPR intellectual property in exchange for profit sharing to promote gender and racial equity in STEM. He was named to Boston's Power 50 list. I mean, he's, he's a man of power. You can see him. He's, <laughs> he's a powerful dude. Uh, but he's on that list, you know, in, in Boston Business Journal. Uh, he, he led Sherlock uh, to recognition as a fast company, um, most innovative company, a red herring top 100 company, first 15 med tech, tech pioneer uh, by the World Economic Forum, and a top 50 innovative company by Boston Now. Um, educational background, MBA from MIT's Sloan School of Management, and a BA from Wesleyan University. And he's written some books, uh, uh, most famous one uh, being uh, Guiding Icarus, Merging Bioethics with Corporate Interests. So welcome to the podcast, and we're looking forward to uh, going deep. And I think we'll start, though, just with a level setting if we could, Rahul, on Synthes, tell us a little bit about what Synthes is doing and maybe working back to the, uh, the, the beginning, how did it get started and um, where are you focused right now? Yeah, happy to. So again, thanks for having us in, uh, you know, the one group that didn't get a shout out is Portal, which I can say, you know, as a supporter and investor in Synthes has been an incredible help to us. So very grateful not to just speak here, but also to have your support, John. Mm -hmm. um, so Sintus, um, Sintus is, uh, is a company we named um, that, in fact, Bob Langer named, um, one of my co-founders, uh, two co-founders. Gio Traverso is an incredible physician scientist at MIT and Mass General, and uh, Bob Langer, whom I'm sure you're all aware of, but, you know, really, uh, despite being, you know, one of the most amazing entrepreneurs in biotech, is also one of the most um, decent human beings and wonderful people to work with. And so it's been an honor and privilege to work with them. And... <clears throat> Without getting too deep into the technology, I'll tell you, you know, where the name came from. We have been thinking about how do we do um, tissue-targeted therapy, um, ways to leverage the body's own tissues, et cetera, to make therapies more effective, but also to develop novel therapies. And so we're a novel therapeutic company. And we went through a number of different names, and Bob suggested, you know, if you take synthetic and you take tissue, you can get Syntis. And that is sort of the foundation of, you know, our, our name and our, and our, and our work. Um, the way the company came together was back when I was uh, running Sherlock uh, and decided it was more or less time to, to move on to something more in the therapeutic versus the diagnostic space. Uh, the first call I always make is Bob Langer. Um, so Bob has been a guide in my career and mentor to me and for, since I was in business school, so over 15 years now. And I called Bob, and the impression and intention I had was I was going to go and work at a pre-commercial company that I could essentially help launch the commercial activity around and then drive towards the public markets, which 
back in 2020 seemed like a great idea, um, but boy, did I dodge a bullet. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> so in talking to Bob, he said, you know, I want you to meet Gio, and um, you should just talk to him a little bit. And Gio's lab is probably less familiar, but is equally innovative, has so many technologies in development that I... I met him once. He's, a, he's a, as equal, an equally decent and amazing human being. And I thought, this is somebody I really want to work with, but I'm probably not because I just don't want to start a company from the beginning because it is, having been in every range of company from, you know, first employee now to the 30,000th, um, you know, I thought there's a sweet spot I want to find, which is around sort of an inflection point on growth. And building companies are are their own unique experiences, as you well know, John, having done it yourself and now doing it um, for many, that that have a lot of benefits and, and certainly edifying in so many ways. But the challenges can be really, really complicated. And I thought, I'm going to do something where I can take everything I know, because I've been at all stages, and just, you know, hit the accelerator. And... So I started talking to Gio, and he, and he had um, a couple of technologies, and I assessed one, spent many months on it while looking at other things, was going down the path with other companies, and I said, I, I don't think I can make this technology successful. Thanks for chatting. And he said, well, let me, let me share just a couple others. And he pulled up you know, a paper that described a way to address specific tissues, and it was odd. I had gone from three months to three minutes to saying, now that's a company I can make successful. Mm. And I dug into it more, did my own diligence, and um, saw its potential from what was an incredibly advanced stage already mm-hmm. to the potential of taking a platform into so many more markets. And those markets ranging from established, very large, multi-billion dollar markets to low resource settings that lack some of the solutions because the cost base prohibits the most innovative therapies from getting there. And here I had something that could address all of them and advance enough that I felt this wasn't gonna be the heavy lift around proving a technology works, but in fact, really pointing it in the direction which is you know, in many ways the biggest challenge of any platform. And that's a challenge that I really enjoyed. And so. I spoke to Gio for quite some time, spoke to Bob for quite some time, formulated a business plan, reached out to investors, got lucky enough to find people like you, got behind it, launched the company, and then, you know, where that's where the fun began. And the fun began with building the team. And um, the one thing you can do that is unique when you build your own companies and you start from the ground up is you get to build the team. You get to build the culture. You get to pull the people in who are going to make that company successful. And that's the part that really... You know, once you start doing it, you can't stop doing it. And so, you know, having made that commitment to moving this company forward, I had then the great joy and privilege of bringing on what is now the best team that I think biotech has ever seen. I'm so sorry to disturb this podcast. However, our sponsors have a word for you, and you just got to listen. Thank you. Advances in biotechnology are transforming almost every aspect of our lives, from the medicines we take to the food we eat, the crops we grow, and the materials we use every day. Benchling connects the entire life science R&D lifecycle, from project documentation and data acquisition to sequence design, sample management, process management, and reporting. By standardizing and centralizing R&D workflows on a single platform, Benchling helps forward-thinking companies accelerate their digital lab transformation to enable better, faster decision-making. We've developed our platform in close coordination with R&D teams from around the world to ensure that no matter your science, from strain engineering and fermentation to cell therapy development, antibody engineering, and everything in between, the Benchling R&D cloud will support the work you do. To learn more, visit our website at www.benchling.com and see how Benchling will help unlock the power of your biotech R&D. Well, well, well you touched and you, you kind of repeated a few times, you know, people and team. And one of the catalytic moments of going, as you described, you know, uh, talking with Gio over many months, but then in three minutes deciding this is the company I want to start. It seems like it's people that triggered it. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the people factor in call all elements of, you know, company creation to team building and 
just your observations around, you know, how important, you know, cause you, and, and even just the importance of the, the founder CEO relationship and how, how important people are in that process. Yeah. Cause you've worked with some, a lot of famous founders and faculty and scientific co-founders along the way. I mean, Sherlock and David Liu and, and others, you know, with, when we'll get into that in just a few minutes, but I think, um, just talk a little bit about the people factor. Yeah, I think um, so. It's a it's a great observation. It's actually the number one factor in what I believe is going to be the success of any organization. And you know, if I distilled it to a thought, it's that technologies don't succeed, but people do. And so, you know, what I found is I've never developed a technology or company where something didn't go wrong with the technology, and I did not rely on the technology to fix it. The technology wasn't going to, you know, in some tautological way, just res- just resolve its own issues. What matters is that you have people who are committed and dedicated to making sure that it succeeds. People who share in the vision, people who share in the mission, people who are willing to make the impact on human health that I think drives everyone in this room and everyone listening to the podcast to the table when it comes to biotech. Smart people get in biotech. Smart people can go anywhere. But good people and smart people are the ones who will make the company successful. And so that does begin at the very top. And so when thinking about your founders and your boards and your investors, it's rare to find everyone, uh, a group of individuals who are aligned uniformly around that transformational impact you're going to have on patients. When you can find that comes the next step. And, and to me, you know, it, it's the most fun, which is then pulling the right people in who are going to not just live that ethos, but actually hire for that ethos. You, you bring people on board who feel the same way, who think the same way, and then they go and find people who feel the same way and think the same way. And you become less connected to the hiring process. You become less connected to, you know, which individuals get recruited but you have utter and complete faith that you're going to have a group of individuals who excel at what they do, that's just table stakes, but who are going to be the team players that ensure success of the organization. And you don't know you have that for sure until you have the crisis that allows you to prove it. But in the absence of that moment, I've, and, I, and, I, and you know, I can go into that a little bit later if, if, if that's helpful, but what what makes it easy to show up to work every day is that you like and respect the people you work with, that you actually want to see the people you work with. And so for me, when it came to who am I going to build something with or what am I going to join, it was always going to be, you know, when I get the phone call from your co-founders, because when you're the CEO, your co-founder is then your boss because they will be on your board. You know, is that a call I relish taking? Mm -hmm. Um, And I've had some that I don't relish and I've had some that I do relish. Mm -hmm. And you know, the unique moment here at Cintus is that I have never looked at, you know, my caller ID and said, I don't want to answer it, right? When it comes to Geo Bob, when it comes to, um, you know, other, when it comes to you, when it comes to my, my investors. Similarly, you know, when I think about how I'm going to deal with and talk to my team and what, to, what, we're going to, what we're going to be discussing at any given moment, it's always one where I know they're focused on issues, that they're focused on solving things, that they're understanding what we're trying to develop so that the conversations we'll have are always going to be around solving the problems that we need to solve. And what that leads to is, you know, that, that critical element of company success, which is building a culture that is you know, inclusive, that is innovative, that is driven, and that thrives on excellence. And it's people who make all of that happen. It's not any other aspect. And I'll come back to people in just a minute, but maybe if we also just step back and rewind to some of your you know, early parts of your journey and what brought you to here today, what, what got you here to have the conviction that you have that that's an important ingredient, an important feature, the drive and the energy that you have to kind of stand up this company and try to move these, this technology forward with this um, impressive team. 
Tell us a little bit more about kind of what got you going early on. I mean, did you always know that you'd be sitting in this room today? Was this your ambition, you know, as a, as a child growing up? Um, were you always interested in science? Uh, you know, tell, tell us more about kind of what got you on the path to get into life sciences altogether. So, um, so I'm a child of immigrants, right? And my parents are both Indian and, um, when you're, some of you may relate to this, when you're like the child of, you know, an Indian immigrant or an Asian immigrant, um, it's like doctor or lawyer. Like those are the options, right? There's not really many other options outside of that. <laughs> and so, you know, I thought doctor. And the reason I thought doctor was because, you know, in my, my, my early years, um, my father, you know, very unfortunately suffered from chronic disease. And um, when I was 14, um, this will date me, you'll all figure out how old I am this way. Warfarin was just approved by the FDA. Hmm. And um, that was also the year that my father had a massive heart attack. Hmm. It was an evening when my brother, who is a pretty you know, disciplined, good guy, um, broke his curfew for the first time. And he came home at a moment that my father was having this heart attack. And he says to my brother, uh, take me to the hospital. I have arm pain and it's nothing. It's just, a, it's a muscle thing. But my dad knew exactly what was happening. Hmm. My older brother didn't quite figure it out. Drove him to the hospital, literally left him at the emergency room door and said, my dad said, go park. And then he went and parked and he came in and then the doctor stopped my brother and said, you know, your father's having a massive heart attack. They then, uh, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know any of this until I woke up in the morning. I woke up the next morning and, you know, we all immediately went to the hospital where he was in the ICU. And they told us, you know, your father's going to have to have a quadruple bypass if he makes it. And he, um, he was given warfarin, which they said, listen, this is a new drug. We don't know. It's the best thing we can do. We gave it to him. And, um, and it saved his life. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, he, he didn't, you know, he, he then had a series of chronic issues thereafter related to end stage renal disease, diabetes, congestive heart failure, things like that, that were all sort of issues that, you know, were, were precipitated by this event. Um, and every time there was some sort of medical intervention that, that helped him through it, and there was some doctor who administered it. And then, and so at that moment, even at the age of 14, um, I, just, I just come to this conclusion that, you know, no 14-year-old should have to go through that if it can be avoided. And so of the two options of a, you know, of a, that, that were presented to me, um, doctors seemed like the right one. But then, you know, I, I go to school and I was always interested in the science. I always did really well in the sciences, but I also loved the humanities and the social sciences mm -hmm. and art. And, you know, as a, as a film major for a little while in college mm -hmm. before I realized that was... Yeah, because your undergrad was history, right? My undergrad was finally... Like, I started out in microbiology and biochemistry. Mm -hmm. I switched to film. Mm -hmm. I realized I didn't want to wait tables, so I switched then to... <laughs> Um, history because I had enough credits to get a history degree. And also because I went to a liberal arts school where like nobody competed to get into the science classes, mm -hmm. but everyone competed to get in the film classes. So you couldn't get in without the major. Yep. And I love film. And so, you know, these are all aspects that, you know, I, I always love. And they're all things that actually help, you know, develop me as my thinking about management, my thinking about problem solving. They're all really useful tools. Um, but then I went and worked as a research tech at the bench at the Harvard Medical School um, because one investigator wanted one person in the lab that he could talk history with. And so, like, I didn't get the job because I was any good at bio. Like, he just like, oh, I'm going to talk to you about this stuff. He was Dutch and, like, he was big in an Erasmus. Um, and so... So, you know, and, and, and I got the opportunity to work with a lot of doctors because they would do rotations. And... We did some really interesting stuff, including, you know, as even techs, we were given pretty, pretty good freedom over the work we were doing. And we, um, we weren't told you're not supposed to do things like invent and write first author papers. And so like 23, I'm writing 
first author papers and I, you know, we're getting patents issued and they're going to build a company out of it. And I realized that, you know, as these doctors are rotating through, I was like, you know, I don't want to be you. There's something about what you're doing that I don't really like. And in fact, if I really want to touch a lot of lives, I'm going to develop products. I'm not going to develop, you know, a set of procedures that I administer to, you know, thousands of patients when I can help millions to billions of patients. And that changed my thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and my route then was, you know, how do I go and do something along this path, mm-hmm. you know, with diversions along the way of, you know, maybe I want to do this, maybe I want to do that. I actually almost went into the humanities to get my PhD and got into a couple of programs until was told by the people there, don't waste your time here, <laughs> go do something more meaningful. Um, not that that isn't meaningful. I have a lot of respect for that, but it just wasn't the kind of meaning that I, that was destined for me. And so I ended up going down this path of just learning what I could about the research because that's where I was exposed. And then I wanted to transition on the business side and had to figure out how to do that. And then you, you spent some time at, you know, with larger companies, right? Boston scientific. Was that yeah. early on in your, your journey as well? And that I mean, was right after my MBA. Okay. It was okay. after my MBA. Yeah. And maybe compare and contrast a little bit. You know, if you look at today, Sintus and you think about Boston scientific, um, what were, what were some of the things that you experienced there that, um, you know, you, you saw as real advantages to, a, to yeah. a large innovative company like Boston Scientific, but, but then also maybe what, what you found different and maybe motivating, you know, in, in building, you know, companies from the ground up. Yeah, so big companies are, are interesting experiences and they're not good and they're not bad. A lot of people will say they're bad if they're in startups and a lot of people will say they're good if they're in big companies. They're just different in my experience and they're valuable in either way. And I think, you know, what I've always find interesting with startup, you know, entrepreneurs is that they look frequently, not often, I mean, not always, but frequently they look down on a big company, which is ironic to me because that's what we all want to be, right? Like, no, I don't want to be a 20-person company. I want to be a 30,000-person, $100 billion organization. That is what I'm building. Mm -hmm. And what you get when you're in those big companies is an understanding of what does it mean to function like that? And the thing that I probably learned that was most relevant to Sentis was the value of process, the value of putting together sets of modes of thinking to address uncertainty. Now, the difference with larger companies is that they have far more data and information than a small company will. But what they don't have is the ability to pick the tail on the bell curve of talent, right? Any large company is going to be a bell curve. You're gonna have more people in the middle of average ability than you are, you know, and you'll have plenty of people, poor ability, plenty of people of high ability. In a small company, you get to hire high ability, right? You get people who are exceptional at what they do. So you have that. And that makes up for that uncertainty because then you build process around those individuals so that they can do what they do best, which is excel at problem solving when you can frame the problem appropriately. So what I, you know, when I think about being in the big company versus the small company, I actually think there's virtue in both. Mm-hmm. I think we all aspire towards one of those two. Mm-hmm. And you know, what you get from that is how does one handle success and growth and scale? Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's around how do you coordinate pieces of varying ability and varying skill sets. I'm so sorry to disturb this podcast yet again. However, we have another sponsor who has a word for you. And, you know, you know the drill. You got to listen. Accelerate your digital transformation with Sikich, a national technology consultant. At Sikich, we have a single-minded focus on improving business performance by deploying best-fit technology solutions. We help our clients understand what could be help them set priorities, and take responsibility to deliver transformative digital strategies. If you want to learn more, visit www.sickage.com to get in touch with one of our many leading national experts. Somewhere in between, you know, Boston Scientific and Sintus, you know, you um, got engaged in CRISPR. Can you talk a little bit about CRISPR? And maybe for the broader audience, even beyond this room, as we really speak to individuals that are in our audience that are just learning about your story and hearing some of these acronyms and um, terms for the first time. Can you break down what CRISPR is and maybe what the possibilities could be as it relates to um, therapeutic options or you know diagnostic tools and, and maybe weave in your own personal 
um, experience at CRISPR. Yeah, I, I, I'll do my best as an on, not the scientific <laughs> expert. I, <clears throat> but I spent you know three and a half years, actually I guess technically four and a half years, you know, on, uh, with Sherlock, um, and um, you know Sherlock uh, is a company that was using both synthetic biology and CRISPR to develop novel diagnostic technologies. But CRISPR itself is, you know, far and away the, one of the most powerful biotechnological tools that has ever been developed. And, you know, for those listening, the, the basic concept of CRISPR is that it actually makes editing genes as simple as, you know, a cut and paste kind of Word document um, activity. Or what you can do is use these enzymes, their nucleases, uh, these CRISPR enzymes. They're called CASs generally. And these enzymes can go and seek out a particular sequence of DNA or RNA even, excise it and replace it with what it is you want to do. Now, it's getting even more and more precise where you have prime editing and base editing where it's single bases that are going to be instead of you know, entire regions of genes. And then there are new technologies now that are coming out that actually do entire genes that can be substituted and resubstituted. Um, so what's interesting about CRISPR is that it's in a broader category of what's called the nuclease. A nuclease is something that chews up DNA. Um, and what we used it for at Sherlock was that chewing up is actually a way of doing signal amplification. So it can also be something that is used to, um, to generate a signal around a specifically identified sequence. And so then you have a diagnostic as a molecular test. And so we were developing that alongside a synthetic biology platform, which was something that could actually amplify um, a signal around a DNA um, um, sequence as opposed to amplifying DNA, which is what most technologies use. And the idea was then to combine them two. And, you know, what drew me into this wasn't just that, you know, it's a, it's a remarkable technology with, you know, leading scientists um, developing it. But also, you know, this was at the time, this was before COVID. Mm-hmm. And before COVID, you know, having been in diagnostics for the better part of my career, and I know you've been very close to it as well, um, I hadn't seen a lot of innovation in the space. And, you know, the question was, do you innovate around the technology or do you innovate around the actual impact of the technology? And where I felt there was a big gap just having suffered through this industry for so long was in at-home diagnostics, which at the time nobody believed was going to be valuable or useful. Um, And so we were going down this path of, you know, CRISPR has some unique aspects. Synthetic biology has some even more unique aspects. Let's either do these individually or combine them and try to get toward at-home diagnostic. And I remember even speaking to a major philanthropy explaining how important it would be to have this for, say, a pandemic response. (laughs) And they told me, no, not interested. And this was uh, July of 2019. Um, And I had this whole vision and plan of how we're going to build up a line of you know, if we can get this extra capital, and we raised a lot of capital. I want to say we didn't raise a lot of capital. We raised $30 million in our A, mm-hmm. and then another 20 in um, non-dilutive. So, you know, we had 55 mm-hmm. to do a lot. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to build up a dedicated manufacturing line for pandemic response, you know, was going to be a lot more money. Of course. And they said, you know, it's interesting, but not so, not so relevant. Um, and then, as you know, actually, all of a sudden, six months later, and I, I mean, and I'm not, not the only relevant. one. Yeah, it became remarkably relevant. And I'm, and you know, I'm not saying that I'm unique in like predicting this. It was a very opportunistic way of thinking about it, and that here's something we can do that nobody else can. Mm-hmm. How can I scale it in a way that is, you know, helping both public health and also um, driving towards, you know, new market creation, which is something I think is really important for early stage companies competing in existing markets hard. And so, going after a new market area and simultaneously having scale is complicated and difficult. And they they eventually, actually, you know, I did do some work with them, but it was almost uh, a little bit on the late side. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a good learning experience for me. Well, you're touching on, you know, a very other, you know, important element and ingredient, you know, to building a great life sciences company. You know, I've always have strong conviction that a great biotech company is equal parts science and equal parts financial sophistication. You need a lot of cash. And raising capital is really important element, you know, every day in the life of building a biotechnology company. 
Can you comment a little bit, maybe a story from the road or even just uh, a story coming out of COVID and what was it like raising money even to get Synthesis off the ground? What were some of the challenges or interesting no's that you got? I, I love the stories of the people that said no. You know, it's like the Michael Jordan's, you know, high school yeah. coach that cut him from the basketball team. Any any stories like that that you're looking ahead 10 years and you're getting ready to go back and say you should have said you should have said yes to this opportunity or any road stories about raising money. Yeah, you know, there's um there are a lot. Um, <laughs> they're never good, right? Uh, I can see I've stirred your emotions. Yeah, you're, no, you're a very yeah, you're, triggered, John. You're very triggered. even keeled, very even tempered. You know, his tone is perfect. But I think I've I'm onto something here. Uh-huh. He's he, he he's picked up his energy a little bit, and I could see some emotion there. How about you? Thank God, thank God, it's in radio and not video. Um, so, you know, it's. Um, your company is your baby in a lot of ways. And so when you know, one of the difficult things with raising capital is when someone calls your baby ugly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, you, you, no matter how pretty or ugly your baby is, you disagree. Um, but you know, there are times when people have come back and said, you know, you had such a beautiful baby then, I wish I could have participated, but there was some reason why I couldn't. Mm. And it was, I, I have the email that says, you know, <laughs> right. exactly you why it. you couldn't. <laughs> you can pull it up right yeah, now. Yeah, you know, right. it was actually a series fact, of points. In fact, I've hung your letter yeah. in my office. Yeah, right. Yeah, and you know, and, and, and I have the email response where I rebutted each one of them too. And here we are. Now, you know, so there, there, there are, there are the sort of the general things that always come up, like valuation, like that's always something that you know is complicated in this game, and and um, so you know I, I do you know I remember when when I um, was raising capital for Sherlock, which was complicated for other reasons than um, you know it's complicated because it's complicated IP space, you know giving assurances around you know CRISPR rights and things like that sometimes gets it gets difficult with investors who don't fully understand but aren't willing to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had groups, you know, what I remember most about that is I had groups get really enthusiastic and then disappear. And I had groups come on board, you know, when I was kind of finalizing the financing, who literally closed in two weeks, which just for everyone to understand, VCs can close in two weeks, <laughs> right? No matter what they tell you, they can in fact do that. They won't and they, and they shouldn't, right? Uh, but, they, but, they, but they can. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, kind of satisfying, but not really satisfying was um, after I was transitioning out of Sherlock and I was having a lot of conversations, people were coming to me. Some people found out before I even announced it and they courted me to do one thing or another. And um, one of them was a venture capitalist who said to me, there's only one company I regret that I didn't get to participate in. It was Sherlock. And, you know, we work with me now. And I did in another capacity. Um, and that was, but it, as you can imagine, it's not a satisfying, like, response. Like, well, you know, it would have made my life a lot easier if you did. Right. right? <laughs> it would have been great. That was the time. Right. right? Um, that group passed on Sintus. And I know it's going to be the same story again, same story. right? Yeah, sure. There's a pattern there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so, you know, when, yeah. when Sintus, but, but the thing is, you know, Sherlock was, Sherlock was hard because it's a diagnostic company. No matter, even CRISPR mm-hmm. makes it hard because the, you know, the, 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 the industry itself has certain, you know, crosswinds and, and currents that are difficult to navigate. Sintus mm-hmm. was hard for a different reason. Sintus um, was hard because it was post-COVID. It was, I think, you know, a lot of macroeconomic factors that everyone's going through. I don't think I'm unique in making this statement. Um, you know, interest rates were going up. Um, capital calls weren't being answered. Mm-hmm. Um, there were uh, a lot of, um, there was also, this was also a moment, and, and I don't put you in this category, <clears throat> just to be clear to all the listeners and people here. It was a moment also where VC felt like, now I can extract my revenge mm-hmm. on all of the overvaluation that I've endured over the last three years, mm-hmm. which I think is accurate. I think there was a lot of overvaluation. And so, you know, going out here, I had a different interesting challenge, which is 
you know, I'm working with the founder of Moderna. I'm working with, you know, Gia Traverso. I've got MIT technology. And there is a real concern around valuation. Like, what is the value of the company going to be? And, you know, I have my own answer to that question. You, you asked me, I gave you the answer, which is it will be what the market bears. You know, we have lots of ideas, but, you know, whatever we triangulate around with our investors who are going to put a price on this is going to be the number. I'm not going to get cut up on that. The other challenge was that um, this is a moment of uh, low risk tolerance for investors. You know, I think, I think it's always been low risk tolerance for investors. I don't think it's ever been a high risk tolerance, no matter what they tell you. Mm -hmm. But I think it has been. Yeah, every time I've gone out to raise money, they always say, well, it's a particularly challenging time to raise money. Yeah. <laughs> every yeah. single time. Every single time. And then they would look in the rearview mirror and say, well, we've just come off a bull run. I, wait, I don't, I don't remember being in the bull run. What, yeah, what yeah, just I, know. <laughs> I know. It's, 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 it's good that you're on both sides of it, actually. It's like you, know, you can empathize. But, you know, I think in this case, the, um, this sort of this triangulation issue um, around these multiple factors, macro, and then you know what, what has been, I think, you know, a lot of overvaluation. So I'm not I'm not against that. Um, but then, like this risk problem is a real problem because what seems to be the case is that to be funded, and I actually I had an investor put it to me this way, and a really great guy, I like him a lot. Um, but he said to me, "Listen, you know, it's a different." It's a different world right now. I can get bargains, and the bargains aren't just on you know the valuation. It's that I can give, I can get a seed stage level investment for a company at the A stage of development, and I'm going to get the A stage level of investment for a stage B development. And everything I think in this market currently has to be like one stage further mm -hmm. to be you know to get there. And you know the the interesting thing is you know I. I had a target of like a very big target, 100% variation, 10 to 20 million for this company. And we landed at 15, um, which one would normally call an A. But I, you know, I, I was trying to get to certain milestones that you know, I deemed as seed, even though those include fairly advanced milestones, like things that are, because you know, even to get to it now in you know, a mature A, you need clinical data which you didn't need before. Mm -hmm. And so what used to be, you know, C stages around technology development and validation, it's now around actual, you know, at least, at the very least, in vivo data. Mm -hmm. So getting everyone comfortable around that, particularly with a new kind of therapy, mm -hmm. where they would raise issues of biology, they would raise issues of these, and, you know, and then there's no one better suited to address them than Gio Traverso, mm -hmm. my co-founder, because he is both physician and scientist, working actually directly in the spaces that we are in, and I would sit on calls, and I would see him address each one eloquently, directly, and correctly. Like, there was no dispute. But what you find is sometimes people just don't want to invest, <laughs> right. but they do yeah. want to talk. Mm -hmm. It's their job. It's mm -hmm. like business development in large companies sometimes, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's not my, my I, there is no risk if I don't do a deal, right. but I still need to vet them, yeah. right? And I think you see that with the VCs, particularly, there was no motivation over, and they're still still bad. Mm -hmm. But I think for the last 18 months, there's been no motivation to do a deal. It's been, let me double down on my current portfolio and make sure that they've got the runway to get out of this period mm -hmm. of when we start lowering interest rates and money becomes cheap and we're going to start investing in companies again. Yeah. But the funny part about what you said that's uh, stuck with me is just that um, the element of, you know, kind of it's, it's your baby and it's, it's personal to, to, to walk the lonely journey and to have the courage to be an entrepreneur. It's, it's, it begins with one and that's you, you know, and, and, but somewhere along the line, you have to transition as you grow and scale so that it becomes less personal in order to be successful scaling back to that story of going from your vision is to become a 30,000 person company. You're, you're going to be the future of Boston Scientific, or pick pick your big company. Somewhere in between that, you know, is that transition from, you know, taking it personally, like working through and weathering the storm and the nuclear winter that we're, you know, that we've been in in the last couple of months, takes sure grit and you know, um, personal commitment, 
and belief and conviction. And so much comes from within. And so, yes, when you get the answer of no coming back from the market repeatedly, that's, um, that can, you know, it affects you personally, right? In, in, in many respects, as thick of a skin as you develop in that journey. Um, you know, I can remember, you know, many of, of my own experiences, you know, just being in out of, whenever I go to New York City, I, I have like PTSD of all the meetings I was in. <laughs> I look up in the, in the meeting rooms, I can say, I was in that room up there, the big guy was the biggest asshole I've ever, you know, like, <laughs> like I can pick the stories, like the letters, you know, of, of no uh, along the way. And I mean, I'm the only one that's carrying that burden. I, I shouldn't, but that's just how it felt. But I think, you know, any perspective, around how you transition yourself and your own mindset as you do experience success. So Syntis will go on and raise the next round, the team will become bigger, you'll hit the next stage of milestones, and how will you transition yourself as a leader you know, as that, as that uh, takes place? Yeah, so, um, so a lot of stuff there. Um, and the first thing I take out of this, I'm allowed to curse now. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> second thing. Yeah, you know, the everything is about scaling, right? One to two is hundred percent increase, right? Two to four, four to eight. Um, there are inflections, right? You get to ten people, you're a much different organization. You get to thirty people, you're a much different organization. You get to fifty. Um, and I remember when I was at Sherlock because we're in the middle of COVID and we were launching COVID product. Like we went from, I think, 12 to 60 in like four months during the pandemic, which is really calm. And, you know, everyone had to be there. And it was, it was a difficult moment because what really makes it challenging at that stage, you know, it's different when you're 1,000, 10,000. At that stage is, have you transmitted the vision well enough to everybody that they can act independently when it comes to decision making. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was really hard, particularly at that point, because not everyone was always in the office together. And so, how do you maintain that? But in these moments, the thing you have to accept as the person who's leading the organization is it has to be good enough, not as good as I would do it, right? because I have my way and other people have their way. But the key is there's an objective. How do we make sure we're hitting the objective? And do people own the objectives in ways that I can step away? The best answer is that you hire people who are much better than you at the things that they do. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's what's so fun about building the team. I don't, there's not a person on my team that I'm better at, at the things they do. Right? And so I can have comfort in the fact that whatever it is they're doing, both they and I, thank God that I'm not doing it, right? <laughs> well, um, so it, I have a few more questions, and then we'll open up to the audience. If there are any questions, um, then we'll, we'll entertain those. But switching gears just a little bit. Look, as much as I hate disrupting the podcast, we've got some really cool sponsors. And so we've got one more that you've got to listen to. For more than 40 years, Cooley's top-ranked team has represented innovators and investors across cutting-edge fields in the healthcare and life sciences industry. Cooley leverages its global full-service platform to advise on financing, corporate partnering and licensing, M&A and public offerings, as well as litigation, regulatory, and intellectual property needs. No other legal team boasts Cooley's level of experience guiding healthcare and life sciences companies throughout every stage of growth. Learn more at Cooley.com. I mean, you clearly have made a commitment to um, really put your weight behind the importance of um, diversity in the workforce, inviting others who perhaps, you know, are not exposed to biotech that should be, um, that you have a deep conviction that by welcoming a more diverse workforce into biotech, there's an opportunity for greater innovation. I mean, surprise, surprise, having more different viewpoints and um, different types of people, you may be looking at different problems to solve, um, different tools or approaches to, to take in that direction. But I mean, you've really, you know, gone, gone all in on this. I'm just curious to hear, 
your very authentic view on like what's driving you in that direction and maybe just the bigger picture. What, what do we need to be doing, you know, as an industry, as we think about the work we, we have to be able to be a viable industry that can scale many of these new transformative, you know, CRISPR driven treatments or cell therapies and gene therapies that need more, more talent in, in the workforce. Any, any thoughts or comments there? Um, lots of them, and I'll try to I'll try to organize them in a useful way. I so the first question is, you know, what what drove it? <clears throat> um, and interestingly, it's not that I'm a person of color. I'm a person of color in a fairly privileged way, right? You know, people generally look at you as being Asian and think you must be good at math and science and things like that. So people don't look at you as not capable. They will look at me as, like, you know, early on in my career as like you must be an R and D. You're probably not a business leader, things like that. But I think that's change for my demographic. You know, particularly when you look at Microsoft, you look at look at Google, you look at, you know, where 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 that's occurring. So I don't think when I think about diversity, I don't think of Asian, in particular Indian, as, you know, underrepresented. What what it is, it is something very personal to me in that, you know, I guess um over twenty years uh, not twenty years ago, in two thousand five, eighteen years ago, I adopted my first child from Ethiopia. And as I watched him grow, you know, I, I always believed in very progressive ways of thinking and inclusion. But I watched my first son and then adopted again my second son, also from Ethiopia, grow up black in America. And watching them grow up black in America, I realized that there is an academic interpretation of what it means to be inclusive and that there is a realistic one about what it means to be inclusive. And we, as a society, are not particularly good at being realistic. But we're very good about saying the things that we should be saying. We're just, we're more challenged when it comes to walking the walk. And I, and I, you know, I choose black as the example because my kids are and I have direct experience there. But I, you know, you can say the same thing for women. You can say thing, the same thing for, you know, any number of other indigenous and, 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 and beyond Hispanic. I think, um, and, you know, what, what really irked me about it is that, you know, I felt like I tried to do things before I was going through this experience with them. Um, but it wasn't as front and center as I believed it needed to be when I saw firsthand what it's like to be the subject of whether it be inherent or deliberate bias. Um, and it was very interesting to me because it's like an area of both society and industry where we pretty readily accept failure without much question. Um, and at its most base level, if our democracy isn't inclusive, then our nation is failing in its own vision and mission. And if we think about our history, you know, our revolution, you know, we celebrate July 4th, that was a very particular demographic people, a people that had property, you had to be white, you had to be male. Now you look to the suffrage, the suffrage movement, women get to vote. That was partially in response to the fact that black men were allowed to vote prior to that. And so in terms of how we're going to increase, you know, certain representation and certain policies and ideas. And if we go through history, some people have enjoyed democracy a lot longer than others. <clears throat> I don't mean to get into the politics of it, but I think it's an example of what we accept generally as a society. And in an industry in particular that has very little room for failure, we have failed to be inclusive in biotech despite being a very outwardly progressive um, set of institutions. Now, what, what I did you know, at Sherlock, what I'm trying to do here at Sintas, trying to do it even more here at Sintas, at Sherlock, you know, I, I basically you know, forced the enrichment of the pipeline of people who are hiring. And, you know, I, I said how we went from a dozen to 60 very quickly. We also, with that group of people, had enough diversity of experience and opinion that we, the new kid on the block, 
launched the first ever CRISPR product to go through the FDA before all the other companies that have been right now. Granted, it's diagnostic, EUA, there are other things that, that attenuate that, but no one would have thought that the company that was founded, you know, that was capitalized, you know, relatively months before mm-hmm. would be the one to do that. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't have happened if I didn't have the very specific set of people there who could think about different ways of addressing things. And I think, you know, even going back to, even thinking about how we set up testing as, as generally um, um, assessing abilities and whatnot, there are so many biases in the, in the institutions we have that it becomes very easy for us to look for other reasons why we're not doing that. I think I, I'm particularly drawn to what Portal's doing because you chose to be here in Dorchester, right? Which is, you know, 40% black. It's, it's actually majority minority if you go into every other demographic. And that's one of the reasons why it was so important for me to move centers here. If we cannot, if we cannot have representation in STEM, we won't have representation in our therapies, in our yeah, cures. We won't be thinking about that. Clinical trial enrollment, yeah, the enrollment, problems we're solving even, for different populations. Exactly, yeah. or, and being you know, broad in how it is. If we're committed to global health, mm-hmm. we have to think about global populations. Mm-hmm. And if we're putting ourselves you know, into other spaces that are less diverse, we are being paternalistic about how we address these things. Mm-hmm. We are gonna do something good for those people as opposed to have those communities as part of my community. And so if we're not locating companies in the spaces that are diverse, mm-hmm. then I think we're not gonna draw on diverse populations yeah. and we're not gonna build what are the best therapies with the best people coming up with the best solutions. Yeah, no, very interesting. And I, and, and I also, um, even more broadly defining, you know, diversification and inclusion, you know, even look at, I think in the next decade, you're going to see different types of innovators in different markets that are popping up that really weren't thought about before. And that, that, will, that will also enrich the diversity of idea and innovation as things scale in biotech. In many ways, we're still... You could argue we're still in the early days of biotech. If this is the biocentry, we're still in the early innings. Yeah. And so we still have a chance to really scale in the, in the next you know, couple of decades. But I think that scaling is going to come in a more distributed, more diverse fashion. I think, and I also think, you know, if we think, if we look at emerging markets and the major markets, I don't know the last time anyone has actually visited, say, Africa. And when I drive around there and see how much investment China is putting into the African economy, African infrastructure. And there's you know, drawbacks to that for sure. Mm-hmm. But this is an emerging economy that generally goes neglected mm-hmm. in terms of you know, market focus. And it is clearly going to be the next China in mm-hmm. terms of you know, what kind of consumer base there is. Mm-hmm. And for many years, no one considered this. And still, we have difficulty considering this as a market worth engaging. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are certain biases around that. There's you know, certain economic challenges too. It's not like this is uniquely one of you know, race and other things. But, but those blind ways of looking at opportunity are what open opportunity to those who have their eyes open. Sure, yep, yeah, great point. I wanna uh, say thank you very much for the conversation today. I wanna congratulate you on always pursuing um, the, the very ambitious agendas that you have. I wish you great success at Syntis and um, look forward to continuing our collaboration. Thanks so much. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you everyone for coming. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.